great to be able to share with you today and to kick off this series. And I've just realized that I left the clicker down here. There we go. Thank you. So yes, uh, for anyone who doesn't know me, my name is Dave and I'm part of the team at Gold Hill. And it is so good to see you. Uh, it's been uh, a privilege to speak to a camera quite a lot in the last while, but it's far nicer being able to see your faces at the same time as you see mine. I, I'm not going to ask if that's reciprocated or not, but um, for me, it's been it's lovely to see you. Um, like Stephen said, we're kicking off a new series today, and the series is called One Another. The phrase one another is found in the New Testament of the Bible uh, around a hundred times. Uh, the Greek word is alelion, uh, which is not very interesting to anyone, but it is. Um, and it's found about a hundred times in the New Testament. And that phrase, the majority of the times it's used, either 59 or 60, depending on exactly which ones you count, are instructions, encouragements to Christians about the way that we should behave, the way that we should be, the kind of culture we should have, the kind of values we should have, the, the ways that we treat one another. We're not going to do all 59 in that series. Uh, we're going to look at nine of them, but there's a lot of overlap in them as well. We're going to look at nine ways, and you can see some of them sort of in those building blocks, those bricks uh, on, that, on that graphic up there, that we are to forgive one another, to spur one another on, to encourage one another, to honor one another, to build one another up. This is the kind of people that Jesus calls us to be. And we're going to be exploring some of those things and asking, what does that look like? What does that mean? How can we, as Stephen said, grow in those things? Last week, uh, Stephen said that Jesus started the church how he wanted it. And he wants the church today to, to be how he started it. Jesus called his people to be a particular kind of people. And that that would be what makes us stand out. These are the building blocks for our life together. So for those of you who are part of our church, for those of you who are part of Gold Hill, who would say, yep, I'm a member of the family, this is who we are called to be. In some ways, this is us going back to basics and saying, what kind of culture will we have in the way that we relate? For anyone who's thinking, well, I don't know if I'm part of Gold Hill, is this relevant to me? I want to say yes. Partly because you don't have to be part of our church for these things to matter, but also because I want to say to you, this is the kind of church we would love to invite you to be part of. This is the kind of people that we would love for you to see us being and for you to join in with us. Sometimes we get these things wrong. Sometimes we don't live up, but this is what we should be seeking to be. So this series actually started in my mind a couple of years ago, before the, the, the pandemic, when Stephen was leading the staff in a, in a, in a bit of uh, training time, and he posed us this question. He gave us some homework. He said, I want you to go away, and I want you to think about this question. What do you want our church to be known for? If we could choose what reputation we have as a church, what would you want us to be known for? I wonder if there are ideas or things that are percolating in your head. If you could choose what people would say of us, what would it be? What is it that we would be known for? He asked this question before our building was even nearing completion. Um, and I knew that I didn't want people to know us for our building. I love this place. It's brilliant. And seeing the, the culmination of all of that vision and all those prayers and all of that sacrifice and all of that work is brilliant. But I don't want people to know us for our building. 
This was uh, before Stephen had been appointed as our new uh, team leader, our new pastor team leader. And I love Stephen. I love working with him. But I don't want us to be known for Stephen. I don't want us to be known for our leaders. I'm one of them. I don't want to be the thing that people know about our church. I think it needs to be far bigger than that, far better than that. So I came up with three things. I am not saying these are the definitive answers. But this is what I came up with as I spent some time thinking and praying about it. The number one thing or the first thing that I want people to know us for is that God is here. I want us to be known as God's people and to know that where we are, he is. And I don't just mean in this building. I want people to know that this is a place where they can come to encounter and to meet with God and to get closer to him. Of course I do. But I also mean when you walk into a boardroom or a meeting or a home or a school, that where we are, God is there. That God is alive and active and at work and he's chosen to be at work through us. And I want that to become more and more of our reputation, that people would know something's different about that place, something's different about those people, that God is there and that God is at work. And as a result of that, the second thing that I thought it would be great if this was more and more our reputation is this, that lives are changed. Not just that God is at work and doing his thing, but that we are, are choosing to partner with him in that, choosing to say yes, choosing to respond and as a result, lives are changed, changed when we first get to know him, when we become a child of God, but then continuing to be changed as bodies are healed, as minds are set free, as all kinds of things that might hold us back are broken, as chains are broken and we are released, that lives are changed, that there are stories of God at work and of us responding. Those are two things that I would love us to be known for. These things are true, by the way. God is here, and lives are being changed. That's a, that's a truth. That's a fact. But the question is, will we be known for that? It is true that I really like honey-roasted cashew nuts, but I'm not known for it. It's not what I'm known for. I receive gifts. Welcome. Uh, anyway, uh, so... It's not, what, it's not what we're known for. It's not what I'm known for. How is it that we will be known for these things, that God is here and that lives are changed? Well, one of the one another statements in the New Testament is that we should confess to one another. And Stephen, before all these people, I want to confess to you that when I did the homework that you set, I copied someone else's answer. Because Jesus gives an answer to this question. And part of the answer that I want us to have is that people would know, our reputation would be that love is real. Why do I say that? Well, the first in our series, our one another series, is that we would love one another. And it's based on these verses from, uh, from Jesus. These words that Jesus said uh, shortly before he would be put on trial and killed. And he said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. See that? I want to I focus in on that, on that last part. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. He's saying this is the thing you should be known for. 
when people see the kind of love you have for one another, they will notice it and they will see and they will say, that person belongs to Jesus. That person is a disciple, a follower, an apprentice of Jesus. That is someone who's modeled their life after him, who's allowed him to be the driving force. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If you're going to copy someone when you're doing your homework, copy Jesus, because his answers are normally very, very good. Love marks us out. Love is what Jesus has said should mark us out. If I go to Tesco and I need to find someone to ask where something is because I don't know where it is or because they've moved it and it's somewhere different. If I go into co-op for the same thing, if I go to an Apple store and I need someone to explain to me uh, which of these expensive devices is the one that I don't need but want anyway. If I go into those environments and I want to know who to ask, I look for someone who's wearing the uniform. I look for someone who is obviously someone that I can approach. We can see some people in uniform today. Hello, wonderful, welcome team, connect team. We know who they are because they're visible, because we can see them, because there's a uniform, there's a, there's a badge. There's something that says they are people who I can go to, and I know that they have authority in this area. I know that they're, they're, they're in because of what they're wearing. And Jesus says that our uniform should be love. The thing that marks us out by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Of course, uh, we, we, we've created lots of different kinds of uniforms that we've tried to say, this is what makes us a Christian. Maybe thinking literally for a moment, the uniform might be a, a fish on our car or a cross around our neck. Those are good things, but that doesn't make you a Christian. That doesn't make you a disciple of Jesus. That's not the uniform. That's not the badge. They're good things, not against them. They're lovely. I'm sure there's people around watching, wearing crosses today. But you wouldn't say, because I wear this, I'm a follower of Jesus, and as soon as I take it off, I'm not. It's not the uniform. Our buildings and what we do in them, the services, like what we're doing right now, or the youth groups, or the children's ministry, or the seniors' ministry, or the things that go on in here are good, but they're not the uniform. They're not the thing. They're not the thing that Jesus says we should be defined by. Our leaders, our worship leaders, our children's leaders, our preachers, our pastors, they're not the things, they're not the uniform. They're not the thing that we can gather around, that we can group under, that we can say, because so-and-so is doing this, we are therefore in, or that we're part of things, or that we're Jesus' disciples. No, love is the uniform. It's not even our doctrine and our theology. I love doctrine. I love theology. I studied theology for three years as a degree. I read theological books. I just finished a book on the Trinity, and I loved it. Theology and doctrine are important, but Jesus does not say, by this will everyone know that you are my disciples, that you have good doctrine and sound theology. Our love motivates us to grow in depth of understanding of God. And as we grow in depth of understanding of God, we should be becoming more loving. And if we're not, then the doctrine's not good, or the way that we're approaching it isn't right. Love is the uniform. Love marks us out. Jesus says it. Not that any of those things are bad. I love all of them, but they're not the main thing. What should our reputation be? Our reputation should be that we love one another in a way that sets us apart. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And you might be there saying, but Dave, 
I'm not a Christian, but I think I'm able to love people. I seem to be able to wear the uniform. I seem to be able to love people. Love isn't an exclusively Christian thing. Of course it's not. People who are not followers of Jesus can love one another, can love other people. But what I want to suggest, and look at the other words that Jesus said in this verse, what I want to suggest is that there is a depth and a kind of love and a source for love that as humans will always be limited, but with God doesn't have to be. Jesus doesn't just say by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. He starts off the verse by saying, a new command I give you, love one another. A new command I give you, love one another. A new command, a new commandment. Is it though? Is it new? Earlier on in his life, Jesus is asked by, by, by people, what's the most important commandment? And he says, there are two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He said those things. So when Jesus says a new command I give you, well, he's already said it before. And actually, even that wasn't original because he was quoting the Old Testament. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And love one another, love your neighbor, is found in Leviticus. Here it is. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. God says to his people through his law, look, I'm the Lord, I'm your master, I'm the one that you serve, I'm the one that has called you, and what I'm asking you to do is to love one another. So how can Jesus say a new command I give you, a new commandment, if actually centuries before it's already been given by God? What's he talking about? Was Jesus just wrong? I don't think he was wrong. Remember, these words that he's saying, were just after he'd shared the Last Supper with his disciples, just after he'd broken bread and shared wine with them, just after he, he, he chose to share all kinds of important things with them that evening before he would go to the cross. This was his, his last bit of message. It's often known as the farewell discourse, as he shares these important things before he leaves them. And when he says, a new command I give you, he's not saying that the words are new. He knows that they're not. He knows his Bible well enough for that. What he's saying is that something is about to change. The nature of this commandment or the, the nature of the way it can be understood and the way it can be lived is about to change. A new depth is going to come to this love. And in that sense, it is a new command. It is a new command because the depth and the kind of love that can be extended is about to change, is new. Notice at the end of this verse, after this command, we read, I am the Lord. It's, and, and it comes again, again and again and again as Jesus gives, sorry, as, as God gives different commands through the law in the Old Testament. He says, do this or don't do this, I am the Lord. Don't do this or do this, I am the Lord. It's a constant refrain and it's a reminder saying, look, I am the Lord and you are my followers and therefore you must do what I say. But in Jesus, we see something different. God is still our Lord. Jesus is our Lord. But in Jesus, we've had models that Jesus relates to his father, not primarily as Lord and servant, but as father and son, as loving father and as devoted child. And in Jesus, we see something new. We see a new kind of love. It's not a new love. It's a love that's always existed. 
but it's a new love that we can, we, we can experience in new ways because of what Jesus has done. What do I mean by that? Well, it comes back to the, the classic idea of the Trinity, which I'm very excited about because I just read a book. The Trinity says that God's primary identity is not as a heavenly taskmaster, looking to see whether we get things right or get things wrong. His primary identity is God the Father, relating eternally to God the Son in the power and love of God the Holy Spirit. That is who God is. He is not primarily a leader and a master and a commander. He is primarily a loving father. Which means that when we relate to him, we relate to him primarily not as servants, but as children. If indeed we can become children. And in Jesus, we see that that is possible. In Jesus, we see that there is an invitation to come alongside Jesus, the Son of God, to become sons and daughters of God ourselves. And in that respect, we can love in new ways. Loving not as an obedient act only, but loving as a response to being invited into a family. Loving in response to the fact that we have become daughters, we've become sons, we've become children of God. So is it a new commandment? The words aren't new. But the invitation, the full extent of that, the power of this command to love one another can be realized in a way that it never could before Jesus. As we become children of the King, as we become children of God. There's another part of what we looked at, which also sheds some light on this. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. As I have loved you. What's that mean? Well, what Jesus doesn't say is, love people how you want to love them. He says, love them as I have loved you. He doesn't say, love people in the way that your society defines love. He says, love them as I have loved you. You can find all kinds of different definitions of love. Love means this, love means that. We hear about tough love. We hear about all kinds of different love, but actually the kind of love that Jesus says we will be known for is only the kind that looks like the kind of love that he has. By this will all people know that you're my disciples. If you love one another, but you've got to love as I have loved you. If we want to see people, if we want people to see rather our love, if we want people to see real love, as a result of a changed life that demonstrates that God is here and he's real and he's doing things, then that has to be love on God's terms, not on ours. So what kind of love is it that Jesus is talking about? Well, I want to suggest that kind of love looks like this. When Jesus says, as I have loved you, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about the cross. Why do I say that? Well, the disciples, straight after Jesus says these words that we've been looking at, and they get a little bit confused about something because he'd said something previously about the fact that he was going to be going away and that when he went away, he would send the Holy Spirit. And, and, and then he says this stuff about love one another. And rather than focusing in the love one another bit, they get very upset about the fact that he's going away. And so they say, sorry, Lord, um, we'll come back to the love thing, but wh where exactly are you going? And so the, Jesus talks about that for a while and then he comes back to it. He comes back to this idea. And when he comes back to this idea of loving one another, he then says... This, 
greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. So Jesus says we've got to love one another as I have loved you, as he has loved us. And then he defines that. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down their life for one's friends. And he then demonstrates that kind of love by dying for his friends, by laying down his life for his friends. How does Jesus define love? He defines it as sacrifice. He defines it as giving up oneself, giving up one's own rights, giving up one's own comfort, giving up one's own being for others. And he doesn't just define it that way. He then demonstrates that and models it that way. This is a verse that is quoted most often in November on Remembrance Sunday. It's a verse that we often come to there as we remember people through human history who have laid down their lives for others in great acts of sacrifice. Yesterday, as memorials and tributes were being shared across social media and by uh, significant figures around September the 11th and the attack and the uh, trade towers, the thing that was being remembered by many was those who made sacrifices that day, not just those who were innocent and killed, but the fire department and the police and people who rushed into burning buildings in order to help others out and who laid down their own lives to rescue others. It was the sacrifice and the courage and the love that they showed in doing that that has been heroed rightly across the world. That's what Jesus is talking about. Greater love has no one than this, that they lay down their life for one's friends. And we need to just be real about this. This is a very high call. Jesus doesn't say, love people when it's comfortable, love people when it doesn't put you out, love people if it's easy. The question is never, should I love this person? The question, according to Jesus, is always, how will I love this person? We don't group people into lists of people who are saying, well, I love those people, but these people I can't. We love everyone, just as Jesus loved everyone and died for everyone. And we have to ask ourselves, what kind of love is it that we're displaying? What kind of love towards others is it that is evident in our life? Is it easy love? Because sometimes loving someone's really easy because they're lovely, because you get on, because they don't ask too much of you, because actually you loving them is very beneficial for you as well. And I know from my own heart that I am very selfish. And I think we all know that to one degree or another, that we can be very, very selfish. The fact that Jesus needed to die for us is evidence of that, just in case no one's ever told you. This is why Jesus needed to die, because we're selfish, because we turn ourselves in, because we decide instead of letting God be father and us be children who will lovingly obey him, because what he wants is good for us, because he's a good father, not a bad father. But in our selfishness, we say, no, I don't want that kind of relationship. I don't want that kind of life. I want to do things my way. I want to I be my own master. I want to be in charge of my own life. And so we turn from God and we do things that aren't right and we think things that aren't right and we do things that are not good for us and not good for others. And, and it's not God's best. The Bible calls that sin. And it's birthed in that selfishness, that I want to be in charge mentality. And rather than just punish us for that, God did something 
the loving father, sent his son who he adores, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And when he came, he died for us. You know, I was looking on the BBC website this week. Uh, and the BBC website has all kinds of helpful articles that are designed to be sort of um, quick guides to find out about things. And I was looking at something about the different ways that different religions and different religious groups do funerals and how they, how they approach death. My life is a lot of fun. Um, and I looked on the, on the bit about Christians. And this is what, on the BBC website, it says about what Christians believe about death and burial. I'm not going to tell you all of it. But it starts off by saying, Christians believe that when you die, you're judged by God. And those who are sinners are, go to hell. And those who are righteous go to heaven. Tick. Job done. Easy as. The BBC is wrong about this. I'm not casting aspersions on the whole of the BBC. The BBC has not done its research. Whoever wrote that article did not take the time to talk to a Christian about what Christians believe about death. We do not believe that we go to heaven if we are good and we go to hell if we are bad. We believe that God stepped into our mess and our brokenness so that we could have a relationship with him. And if we want that relationship and we say yes to that relationship, in love, he welcomes and accepts us and forgives us. And everything that we've done wrong is placed on Jesus and he is judged instead of us. And if we say we don't want that, that we want to remain by ourselves and we don't want to receive that, then God says, I will not force it upon you. It's a choice. The BBC makes it all about whether I'm good enough or whether I'm too bad. It's just not the truth. Jesus died. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And that's why he did it for you and for me. We're all people who are in need of that. We're all people who can respond to that. And part of responding to that is then laying ourselves down for others and showing love to others. What does that look like? Well, for most of us, it probably won't involve a moment where we choose to literally lay down our physical life for others. It might. But just even if it's not that, it doesn't mean we're off the hook somehow. Loving in a sacrificial way can be huge things. It can also be small things. Loving in a sacrificial way when you come here on a Sunday might mean shuffling into the middle of a bank of seats so that someone else can have the end. A little bit less comfortable for you, more comfortable for them. Loving someone sacrificial, sacrificially means choosing to serve other people, even if it puts you out a little bit. I had a wonderful conversation with someone in this church, and I'm going to avoid making eye contact at this point, um, this week, uh, who said they'd love to have a conversation about how they, can, how they can serve, how they can volunteer. And they said, I've got a few ideas, but ultimately I want to know where the need is, and I'll serve there. I love that attitude. I love that heart that says, actually, if I'm serving other people, it's not primarily about what I'll enjoy. I think it's good to serve in ways that we're good at, and serving can be a lot of fun. I'm not against that. But saying, I want to serve where there's a need, because it's not about me, it's about other people. Loving and sacrificing could be saying no to that promotion, because actually, there's a family who need you more. Loving could be sacrificially giving financially and saying, this is going to be hard for me, but there's something bigger that I'm going to give to. I'm going to sacrifice. Loving sacrificially could mean calling out injustice in a workplace or a school or somewhere where you are 
calling out something which you see that is wrong, even if you know it could make you unpopular or could make things uncomfortable. Sacrificially loving means putting your own preferences to one side for the benefit of others. It doesn't just happen here. It happens in our lives. It happens wherever we are. But if we can't do it here, we probably don't have much hope anywhere else. I think this is a relatively easy place to love people, mostly because you're all lovely, but also because we're all here for at least a similar reason. We can all gather around the Jesus who died on that cross and demonstrated sacrifice and demonstrated love. So, as we start this series with this idea of loving one another, where does that need to land for you? Where do you need to commit to love? Do you need to just say, God, I've never really done it, but I'm choosing to put on that uniform. I've actually probably been marked out more by selfishness or by cynicism or by um, sort of self-preservation. And I need to be marked by love. Lord, help me to put on the uniform. Help me to be marked out. Do you actually need to receive God's love? Because it's been a long time since you've really dwelled on the fact that God loves you enough to do these things. Because we can try and fake human love. We can try our very best to pretend to love, to try to love, to do the things that might look like we love. But it actually, for it to be love, it needs to come from within. And the only person that can do that with our hearts is Jesus by the power of his Holy Spirit. Maybe there's someone who you know, I find it so hard to love that person. I find it so difficult within our church family or somewhere else. And you say, Lord, I need your help with that. Over the course of the rest of this series, we'll explore some of these other ideas of honoring one another, of spurring one another on, of serving one another. All of those things are expressions of love. All of those things come from a heart and a mindset of love, of saying, look, I'm going to die to myself in order to put God first and those he's called me to. So I want to encourage you for a moment to just bow your heads and I'm going to pray. And first, I just want to ask, as we've explored how God loves us, if that's something that you want to receive for the first time, if you want to say, Lord, something about today, I've realized that you love me. And I've realized that I can be your child. That I don't need to fear you, but I can love you. And can I just ask you to, to indicate that? Maybe pop up your hand and I can pray for you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Lord, I want to pray for those people who have just made something of a step towards you, who have said, I want that in my life. I want to receive the love that God gives. I want to receive the, that love that I've just heard about. I'm sorry for the things that I've done. I'm sorry for the ways in which I've been the boss. Lord, I want to come to you and receive from you. Lord, would you encourage those people? Thank you that when we come to you, you are faithful and you come near to us. So Lord, would you continue to confirm that love? Help them to respond to that love. 
And for all of us, responding to this in different ways, thinking of particular individuals or particular situations or particular mindsets or things that need to be broken or encouraged or strengthened, Lord, you know where each of us is. And I want to pray, Lord, just would your love overflow? Would your love in our lives be so tangible? By your Holy Spirit right now, would you fill us with a deep consciousness and knowledge of that love that is wide and high and deep and strong? And Lord, would it, as it fills us, would it flow from us that we would love one another? And would we be known for our love? Would it be so different and so radical and so confusing to people because of its persistence, because of its strength, because of the way that is so demonstrated? Lord, would we be known for our love because you are here and because you have changed us? In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.